0: From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. The Center of Theological Inquiry is an independent research institution with an interdisciplinary program. Each year the center convenes a research team of resident scholars whose individual projects contribute to a larger inquiry on a global concern. This year we're working on a project that is truly global in nature, indeed even cosmic, With support from the NASA Astrobiology Program and the John Templeton Foundation, we've convened a two-year project on the societal implications of astrobiology. We're now two months into the first year of the program, and I have the chance to sit down with three of our current research fellows to discuss their work and how it relates to the field of astrobiology. Now, if you're wondering at the moment what in the world astrobiology is, keep listening and you'll find out. Joining me here in my office are three fascinating scholars. Susan Schneider is a philosopher at the University of Connecticut. William Brown is a scholar of biblical studies at Columbia Theological Seminary. Lucas Mix is our resident astrobiologist and author of the book, Life in Space, Astrobiology for Everyone. If you want to know more, please visit our website at ctinquiry.org, follow our blog, and subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining the conversation. I'd like to just turn it right over to Lucas and just ask, by way of introduction, what is astrobiology, and how did you become interested in pursuing a career in this field?
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I see astrobiology as the study of life as it happens to planets, or the study of life in space. So we're looking at this big-scale question of what is all life on Earth like, and what would it take to convince us that there's life elsewhere? I started out in evolutionary biology, asking questions about the early development of photosynthesis. And I really got involved with the NASA Astrobiology Institute because I felt like they were asking the really big, really early questions about life and some of the really important things about how we frame the whole question.
0: Great. I've also got Susan Schneider here. I'd like to get her to say a bit. She's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. So, Susan, how did you come to be interested in astrobiology?
2: Hello. Well, um, I have a funny story. So I just got an email out of the blue uh, about a year and a half ago from Stephen Dick, who was then a chair at the Library of Congress, who was putting together a symposium on the topic of discovering alien life. And Stephen asked me if I could please come and talk about how aliens would think and what it would feel like to be an alien. So, I thought that was pretty interesting, although I was a little bit worried about the repercussions for my career if things got too weird, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I couldn't resist because it was a NASA-related uh, conference, and so I, I came, I had a great time, I did have some things to say, and uh, I've been interested ever since.
0: Great. Thanks, Susan. And then finally, to round us out, we've got William Brown, who's professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Bill, as a scholar of the Old Testament, how do you approach the field of astrobiology? Thank you, Josh. Uh, I guess my first two words would be,
3: very carefully. (laughs) Um, I'm still actually trying to work that out, uh, but I can tell you a little bit about the reasons that astrobiology is appealing to me. One of which is that um, uh, as I deal with ancient texts that go uh, way back to you know a, a millennium BCE, uh, I work with then the findings of astrobiology that take me even farther back in terms of cosmic evolution. Uh, it offers the big questions about life, um, and the Hebrew Bible, for me, offers the big questions about the meaning of life. And I see a sort of convergence there that, uh, yes, I'm still trying to work out. Uh, but they both afford me a, um, a long, broad framework
0: uh, for discussing these important issues. That's great. I'd like to add that the, these are three of 12 scholars who we have here at CTI for nine months, You guys have been here for about a month now, Mm -hmm. two months almost, and uh, they'll be here till May, so they'll be working with one another for a full academic year, and this is near the beginning of their time. Now, CTI aims to be a site of interdisciplinary conversation, so I'd like to hear from all of you what you think this kind of interdisciplinary work should look like when we're talking specifically about the societal implications of astrobiology. So I'll throw it back to Lucas again and ask you as an astrobiologist, you know, before you came, what were you hoping to to gain from this dialogue with theology and the wider humanities?
1: Astrobiology deals with questions of what we mean by life. In particular, there's this really big question of if we're looking for life elsewhere, what is it about life here? that makes it that we want to find another example. And so I think that astrobiology really touches on some some issues that are, are, uh, well, I'll say visceral for all of us because we find ourselves alive. And I think because of the public interest in this, it's a great way both to get the general public more interested in the science that's being done and to get scientists to think more critically about the way their work interacts with all of these other questions, uh, such as the ones that Susan and Bill have raised, that have been on the human mind for millennia.
0: Great. That's really interesting. I'd like to turn and ask a similar question to Susan. Your work is sort of at the intersection of science and philosophy, if I understand it, and... So I'd like to ask specifically, do you think that in this dialogue, is it mainly about humanity scholars brushing up on their science, or is there something humanity scholars, including philosophers, can give back to science or that science somehow needs?
2: I definitely think it's a two-way street. So um, in my own experience, it's helped me a lot to think more about the biology of life to do the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't be expected to know all about biology, my undergraduate degrees in economics, and so I'm actually having so much fun as a student this year, um, learning from books like um, Lucas's wonderful book, for example, and Seth Osteck's book, um, you know, the textbook in astrobiology, just reading a lot. Um, But I do believe that um, people throughout the sciences should think about philosophical questions, and just as... People don't assume that I necessarily know anything about biology when I'm new to a a field. We should assume that even those developing the most important scientific work may not have even had an undergraduate class in philosophy. And so I was actually just at a workshop in astrobiology where I gave a philosophy paper and saw the reaction of, you know, super bright people whose work I really respect on My work, which was, you know, at the sort of, you know, kind of point of contact between biology and philosophy, and I could tell that they definitely could benefit from thinking about the issues from a philosophical vantage point. Hmm. So I think it goes both ways.
0: Very interesting. Lucas, do you uh, (laughs) have any response?
1: Oh, I I think largely I agree that the wonderful thing about astrobiology being sort of a new approach to an old question Mm -hmm. is that a lot of us, even in the sciences, have been thrown together uh, with people of varying expertise, uh, particularly, you know, biologists learning about astronomy and Mm -hmm. astronomers learning about biology. And I think that it's really time to, uh, to wrap philosophy into that question. But all of us come to this because we recognize there's something about, well, let's call it the meaning of life, which really touches on all of these fields. And if we want to make serious progress, we're going to need to get people from all of these different disciplines who have been working on it for a very long time. Bill
0: Brown, as a scholar of the Old Testament, what do you see as the benefits of this interdisciplinary conversation that brings together scientists, philosophers, theologians, biblical studies scholars? I
3: I celebrate that, and CTI is a wonderful place to um, foster this interdisciplinary discourse uh, throughout this year. I think for me, um, and not just a biblical scholar, but a biblical theologian, I have been convinced for a long time that, uh, that if theology is faith-seeking understanding, as defined by Anselm, and science is a form of understanding, seeking further understanding, then theology has nothing to lose and so much to gain from be- being a part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Put it another way, if theology is all about relating the world to God and it ignores the findings of science, then theology fails. Mm -hmm. It falls flat. And so for theology to be current and to be relevant and I think to be meaningful, uh, science needs to be a part of that dialogue that theology needs to entertain. So, So we have philosophy, we have science, and we have theology. And of course the Bible is full of ancient theology, uh, specifically theologies, uh, is a wonderfully diverse uh, panoply of approaches to God and to life and to creation. Uh, to
0: have them all in dialogue with each other is, uh,
3: is something to
0: behold. One of the things about our project at CTI is each of the 12 scholars Is working on their own project, which is related to this broader topic of the societal implications of astrobiology, and then they're also coming together each week uh, through that work to to dialogue together and to work on this shared uh, project. I'd like to turn now to talk to each of you about your own shared—I mean, your own individual projects—and to think about how they relate to this overall uh, project and the societal implications of astrobiology. Uh, So. Throw it over to Lucas. Uh, as I understand it, your project centers on how we can or should define life. As I've read in your book, Life in Space, Astrobiology for Everyone, it turns out that life is actu- actually really difficult to define. There are many borderline cases where it's not clear whether something is alive or not. I can think of many, several examples. Uh, but just to Throw a question out there. I, I thought of a famous quote by the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, who's quoting Samuel Johnson, when she says that the fact of twilight does not mean you cannot tell day from night. Maybe you've heard that quote. And uh, so, if I applied it to the to life, I might say, well, I know an elephant is alive, but a rock is not alive. And maybe there's borderline cases. There's twilight, but we. Do we should we define life based on the obvious cases or on the borderline cases? So, just a way to say what's at stake in this question about the uh, how to define life. Well,
1: it's a wonderful and very large question. I uh, I will say that I I came into the year with a clear idea in my mind what astrobiologists want from a definition of life. We want something we can program into a robot and send to Mars, <laughs> and. It's actually really hard to get a robot to tell you when twilight occurs. Um, So one of the things I want to do this year is talk to the other scholars about what is at stake, what do we want in these other disciplines. I've been really moved by some of the work that Bill has done on Genesis 1, because there the idea of life and the relationship between life and God does some very important theological work but it's the type of theological work that you probably couldn't do with a robot. (laughs) And so I think it's really important for us to set out what work we want to do in different disciplines so that if we have different answers, we can be clear about where one picks up and another one leaves off. If I was to respond to Samuel Johnson, I would say that It's true, there are many wonderful concepts that don't have strict definitions. Uh, Bald and rich are two very popular examples. I would say that, particularly in science, but in critical thinking in general, if you don't know what you mean by a word, maybe you shouldn't be using it. If we're going to use life as some sort of concept for critical thinking, I think it's really good for us to figure out how it is we want to use it.
0: Susan or Bill want to weigh in on this question at
1: all? Uh, I've just found throughout our discourse so far, uh,
3: both with Lucas and with Susan, is that uh, life begs for and defies definition. Uh, And uh, so I haven't come up with a rigid, self-contained definition of life yet, and I'm not sure if I will be able to. Uh, But uh, I think it's important to keep that concept, notion, open... Uh, particularly because, as you've emphasized, Lucas, that uh, astrobiologists are searching for life as we do not know it, um, which uh, allows for the element of surprise. Uh, we're moving into the great unknown with respect to how life can be so uh, broad, uh, defining wise and otherwise. Uh, so um, it it's, remains an open question, and I'm not sure if we'll be able to develop a full definition. But I don't know if that gets back to the pornographic definition of, of life that you mentioned in your book, that we will we'll know it when we see it.
0: It's, it's not that simple either. That was another point I wanted to pick up on, actually, was exactly this point that, where Lucas talks about in his book that astrobiology looks for life as we do not know it. That got me thinking, um, most of the time science focuses, as I understand it, on the, the physical world that we can observe. So when it comes to things that we cannot observe, it seems that science usually says, well, we don't know anything about that, or we just have a sort of methodological agnosticism about what that, what, what that might be. But it seems like with astrobiology, there's a tendency to think about what might that thing be that we don't know anything about, which sort of borders on a kind of speculation. So is, would you see this, Lucas, as a sort of development in the scientific method, where science is more interested in things that have not been observed, Uh, than it had been before.
1: Max Weber has this great line about teaching, and he says that the role of a good teacher is to force us to deal with inconvenient truths. Mm -hmm. And so while there's much speculation in philosophy of science about where exactly the borders of science should be, I feel that science has always been about figuring out what sorts of questions we can ask and answer with empirical methods that give us inconvenient truths. And I think it's something we've been doing in science for some time. We used to think that spontaneous generation happened, that that life arose from from muck. And we did actually a number of very good experiments to show that that didn't happen. Uh, And that was very surprising. So I think that astrobiology is willing to ask things between scientific disciplines in a way that right now is very helpful we've come to feel that there are are very concrete boundaries to physics and biology and biochemistry and so in that way I think we're opening things up but for me at least science has always been in this business of pushing at the boundaries of what we know and looking for life and other things as we don't know them
2: Sure, absolutely. I mean, just to comment on the broader issue of astrology, I mean, some people claim that it's a science with no subject, and they quickly brush it off, Um, but I think that there is a lot going on, actually, in terms of data, even though there's, as far as we know, no uh, alien out there that we've, you know, heard from or uh, discovered, but you know, there's a lot of data out there. I mean, look at all the exciting work on exoplanets. It's incredibly suggestive Mm -hmm. of the possibility of life elsewhere. And, um, you know, I mean, there's just so much to think about.
1: And we're learning a great deal about uh, early life on Earth and diversity of metabolism that suggests life could be in many places we didn't think that it could be before in freezing environments and burning environments.
0: I'd like to turn now to to Bill's project and, and what you're working on here this year at CTI, before you sort of give a, a broad discussion of, of what you're what you're doing, I, I'd like to say that you've done a lot of work just in science and religion, uh, the intersection of science and religion. Sorry. I know you've. You've you've worked on a science and seminaries project, which I think you might still be working on. And, you know, there's a whole history in the modern period of Christianity in some way resisting science, uh, whether it's Galileo or or Darwin. And so there's a lot to be done, and a lot of theologians think a lot about how to help religious people and Christians, as an example, uh, sort of be more accepting of, of science. And so I I assume that some of your work is in in that area. Um, But do you also see religion and theology as somehow saying something back to science or uh, in some way this again being a a two-way street in this dialogue?
3: Uh, Yeah, a bit. Although um, I would not be so presumptuous to say that scientists can learn from theology uh, to help them undergo their... to work on their particular projects at all. Uh, But I think uh, the dialogue that has... um, 've uh, been going on for at least the last few decades, if not um, a couple centuries is, is, uh, is about the theologians pointing out to scientists the limits of, um, of what they can say uh, about the universe from a metaphysical standpoint. Um, in fact, part of the, the whole debate, if not uh, fight between certain um, religionists and certain scientists uh, is, has to do with um, The limits of uh, of what can be known and what can be said. Um, So I I think that may be helpful, but actually, it really is a, uh, as far as I can tell, a misnomer to to uh, characterize religion and science as a debate or a fight. Um, Those are the events; those are the things that are played up in the media. Uh, But there's a lot more going on that is constructive, and I think mutually beneficial. Uh, among scientists and and people of faith. Uh, in fact, I found that um, that many scientists are very, very curious, if not eager, to learn what theologians have to say about their work because they themselves are wrestling with how they can integrate their own sense of religious belief with the work that they do on a day-to-day basis with their experimentations and such. So, uh, so the questions are alive, and they are... Um, uh, inviting us to, to work from a more constructive basis, to, to find convergences, uh, consonances, and to recognize that, particularly with the Bible, that's my area of work, is that there are a lot of collisions between what the Bible claims about the world and what scientists say about the world and, and what they observe. And that's fine and good because the Bible is not a scientific document. And I think that's where some of the problems arise is that uh, uh, certain folks treat the Bible as scientific, uh, at least uh, reading the Bible to make claims that either can be proved by science or that can rival science. And I I consider that very, very problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bible is an ancient document. Uh, It is Um, pre-scientific. And yet... um, it is the product of, of people who have been keen observers of the world around them uh, in order to survive on the land. Uh, agronomy, you might consider it to be the first science um, um, among ancient peoples, along with uh, uh, medicine to an extent. So, so for me, the Bible offers a lot of wisdom uh, uh, and has something to say about the meaning and value of life that can be... Um, brought into the discussion of certain scientific disciplines that are broad enough to, to come close to addressing that very same issue, the meaning of life, and
0: astrobiology is one of them. So in that sense the, reading the various creation narratives and I know you've you've pointed out that there are not only one not only two but how, like how many creation narratives in the old in the Hebrew Bible so, so far I've counted seven but seven, there are probably okay. more yeah. uh,
3: Genesis 1 is of course most well known it holds that primacy of place because it's the first chapter of the bible uh, there is the garden story the story of Adam and Eve that follows and that is Truly, a, a different creation account, but they've been brought together for certain theological reasons. Uh, but there, are, there are others. Uh, some of them are very poetic; uh, they're not narrative, uh, but they they have their own unique perspective on on the world, if not the universe. And so, um, there are a couple of psalms, Psalm 104, that uh, is a praise of creation and praise of God as creator that that actually does not mention human beings until much later in the psalm, after it makes reference to the cedars of Lebanon, uh, uh, certain birds, uh, other forms of animal life, the conies. Um, uh, and so human beings are simply one species among many other species. And that that's a nice counterbalance to the, uh, the image of God Uh, being human beings created in the image god of Genesis 1 so you have a very imperial view of human beings in Genesis 1 and you have more of simply a kind of uh, communitarian view of human beings along with the larger community of of animal life Um, yeah uh, Proverbs 8 uh, creation created for wisdom not necessarily for human beings we are wisdom's playmates um, Ecclesiastes 1 is sort of its own take on, on creation in which everything is getting cycled and recycled and sort of a um, steady state kind of <laughs> approach to uh, creation. So you have all these different takes on creation from various traditions of the Bible uh, that I think taken together suggests that, uh, that the universe is a gloriously complex world.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You can't reduce it to one or the
0: other. So in your view, the, the modern scientific theories, they don't replace these, these theological conceptions of, of the origin of the world. They don't replace it. We don't, as modern people, have to say, well, now we, we set those aside because we now know they're erroneous and uh, superstitious or, or whatever. You're wanting to somehow have them both as resources, uh, for our, our living and our understanding of ourselves. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, uh, I think it's very
3: helpful to actually read these uh, various ancient traditions through the lens of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to acknowledge that we read the Bible through a variety of lenses, given our own distinctive cultural contexts and family backgrounds and our ethnic origins. Um you our ideological positions. These are all lenses through which we read scripture. So why not science as well? And to do so in a way that uh, that brings about a constructive conversation, because the biblical traditions are laden with value and meaning, uh, and the scientists pride themselves, as far as I know, in their at least in their work, their professional work of of not addressing um, meaning per se, uh, or at least the meaning of, of life per se, although again, I think astrobiology has the, has the wonderful potential of, of blurring that boundary. Um, so it's, it's good to bring into conversation. more The more we know about the world in which we live, and how do we wrestle with that in terms of our meaningful perspectives of the world. Um, I mean, one can always inform the other. Uh, it is a mutual interaction.
1: I am an Episcopal priest as well as an evolutionary biologist so I spend a lot of time thinking about this type of question and one of the things that that interests me is in looking at the relationship of humans to other organisms and the relationship of organisms to the universe and I think Genesis tells a really important story about those emotional dynamics Mm -hmm. while my understanding of evolution tells a story about uh, well we'll call them the blood relationships you know the brothers and sisters and and fathers and mothers that there's a a connection there Um, it doesn't say that we're a functional family but it does say we're a family and I think that the Bible is a good way of looking into how we can be a functional family so those two things for me really complement each other and I'm very interested in this question of what separates vegetable life from rocks. You know, what makes moss different from a rock? And what makes animal life different from vegetable life? Uh, you know, and are humans a particular kind of animal life? And you, you have those, those sort of layers of life in Genesis. Um, They were very popular in Aristotle, and they're popular in philosophy up until about 1500 or so, um, and a little bit after that. So that actually gets on to some of the stuff that Susan studies in terms of of what it means to be conscious among the many animals. So that's one of the things I'm very excited about, uh, interacting with her on this question as well.
0: Let's turn to Susan's project, actually, and have you talk. I don't know if you wanted to touch on any of those previous issues before we go to your actual project, but I'd like to begin with something you talked about in your colloquium a few weeks ago, which was the Fermi Paradox. And if you could just, just because I found it so fascinating, if you could just say a bit about what the Fermi Paradox is.
2: This Fermi Paradox causes me to lose sleep sometimes, (laughs) as I confessed to Um, so the Fermi paradox is basically, well, according to some, it's not really a paradox. It's more like a question, where are they? I mean, if there are all those exoplanets out there, and if we find things like liquid water on Mars, for example, and you know, we start to think, gee, there must be life elsewhere. But then we listen for signals, and we look around us, and we say, well, gee, short of you know, these crackpots who talk about UFOs, we just have <laughs> no information to the effect that there is intelligent life out there. Um, so it leads us to ask, well, is there something wrong with our astrobiology or is there some type of maybe filter where there we will find microbial life, but there's no intelligent life because um, civilizations, when they reach technological maturity, tend to exterminate themselves through their own stupidity. Um, and, hey, we may be at that point. So that's why the Fermi paradox causes me to lose sleep, and that's what the Fermi paradox is.
0: So could you say a bit more about how, how that paradox sort of relates to your own project in terms of you're working in super intelligence?
2: Yeah, so um, there's two lines of thinking that involve super intelligence going on right now and they're pretty much separate streams of literature and I think they need to talk to each other. So one is in the news a lot um, in terms of artificial intelligence and this is stream of literature um, associated primarily with the work of Nick Bostrom that worries about the creation of greater than human intelligence on Earth. So the worry there is that We're getting closer and closer to creating artificial general intelligence right now. And we may, in fact, get human level intelligence within, say, the next 30 years. Um, And once we get to that point, we could rather quickly generate beyond human intelligence. And then there's the problem of how to control it. Um, We can't even control our own teenagers. So how are we going to control super intelligence? And um, this problem has convinced a lot of important people. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in the media. So you get pronouncements, for instance, made by people like Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, um, Max Tegmark, and others. And so everybody's worried about the creation of superintelligence on Earth. Second stream of literature, the astrobiology literature, a number of us um, have worried for a while Or have I shouldn't say worried because I think I'm the only one worrying, but have discussed the possibility that the most intelligent uh, creatures that we actually locate in space or that exist in space, if anything exists out there that um, is intelligent at all, would be forms of artificial intelligence and they would be um, older than us because Earth is relatively young. And would be far more advanced, so they would be super intelligent. So, I look at both of these debates, and I'm interested in both of the debates: the creation of super intelligence on Earth, and this post biological tradition in astrobiology that's associated um, with myself, Paul Davies, Martin Rees, Seth Shostak, and Stephen Dick, among others. And um, I want to put these to different streams of literature and dialogue and introduce issues in cognitive science um, to help explore how we might understand the thinking of super intelligences. I think that we can, in fact, identify some positive directions. And then I also think about machine consciousness. So for me, and this I think connects up with the issues that we talk about a lot in our seminars about life. Um, We're all interested in the relationship between consciousness on the one hand and life on the other. And we all see the um, amazing phenomena of conscious experience. You know, we can introspect and we know it's there in our case. And we ponder whether artificial intelligence could actually be conscious, right? And this relates also to the issue of whether artificial intelligence qualifies as a form of life. I mean, how do we define life? I mean, that's something that I think is an important issue going into the future, because it may be that the most intelligent beings on the planet are super intelligent AIs eventually, and they may not even be forms of life. And how are we going to relate that to the issue of consciousness, whether they're conscious and the issue of, personhood that is whether or not they're persons are they moral agents i mean there's a whole cluster of questions here that connect up to the astrobiological issues in a really interesting way
0: this picking up on the question of consciousness uh, it seems like one question we could ask is whether consciousness itself has inherent value now it seems like there's one response could be something like well obviously it does because with the you might. someone might argue that without consciousness value itself wouldn't exist maybe only conscious beings can value something so without consciousness there would be no value at all maybe some argument like that but what kind of just to throw that out there what kind of argument would you give for why it would be a sort of loss if human beings somehow lost consciousness or became some sort of artificial intelligence that didn't have didn't have consciousness
2: well I think it would be very tragic mm-hmm. and I think When people think of a coming singularity, for example, transhumanists who aspire to see the um, machine age apply to our minds, where we upload or enhance our brains by adding, say, microchips, I mean, these people are definitely not thinking of a case in which the consciousness in their brains diminishes every time they add a new microchip or when they upload they're not conscious they're thinking that this is a way to immortality Um, so I think our capacity to experience the world is absolutely central to who we are and although we can see the moral significance in inanimate objects such as, I'll give an example state parks, Um, you know these things do figure in the moral calculus but Creatures that are moral agents are creatures that have the capacity to feel pain and can experience the world on almost any conception of morality. So I think that this is a very important issue to consider. Um, you know, what will the path to post biological intelligence entail uh, if it involves a situation when the most intelligent beings? are not conscious or do not have ways of life that we find to be valuable that's something we really need to reflect on
3: I, I like what you said Susan there was one word that you uh, that you referred to that I think speaks volumes and that is the word pain or as I would retranslate that as suffering it seems to be suffering uh, is a part of of, of being self-conscious um, and I think uh, it has been argued that uh, that human beings, being the most uh, complex and self-conscious beings on this planet, have a greater capacity to suffer than um, than our evolutionary cousins uh, and uh, and 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 life. That pain, of course, is I think a universal um, uh, feeling. But but to suffer, uh, that is to feel pain in a self-conscious way, is partly what defines defines uh, advanced animal life, including humans. And so to to lose consciousness, I think, is also to lose the capacity of suffering. And, uh, and for the biblical perspective,
0: suffering and consciousness sort of fit hand and glove. Lucas, in your book, if I remember correctly, Life in Space, uh, Astrobiology for Everyone, you, you just in one sentence pick up the question of artificial intelligence, and you basically say, well, if we discover artificial intelligence in the universe then we know there's there's actual life there and that so that, that's sort of that's all we care about is the fact that there is there is life there that created the artificial intelligence and then you leave it behind and, and move on is that so is this discussion of artificial intelligence pushing you to think more about that than you did before or consider it more for astrobiology
1: there's so much wonderful stuff that I could I could uh, latch on to there so I think where I'm going to where I'm going to go with that I'm actually more interested in the problem of artifice in that than I am in the problem of intelligence. Which is to say, when we say artificial intelligence, we're talking about an intelligence that we as humans have made. And people tend to distinguish between the things that we have made and the things that God has made, or perhaps the things that just occur naturally. So, as uh, I'll say, when I'm wearing my scientist hat and I say I'm looking for life then a sign of artifice is good enough. And so an artificial intelligence is a sign of life, but that's a very broad definition of life. One of the things that Susan has really brought home to me is this idea of how do we consider these things that have consciousness, which I, default, call life. She's been challenging me to say, well, no, maybe it's intelligence, but it isn't life. And... And I'm going to have to think a lot more. Hopefully, by the end of the year, I'll, I'll have some solid uh, intuitions about that. But for right now, I'll say it's an open question. And I think the relationship between consciousness, intelligence, and life is one of the areas where this sort of interdisciplinary communication will really show us what types of questions we need to be asking.
0: I'd like to sort of round this out with uh, one more kind of question that I'd like each of you to answer. Um, It seems to me that we know that either there is life elsewhere in the universe or there isn't. So, and we also know that there's some people, I think, who hope there is life elsewhere in the universe. I think I've met a few of them. And then there's other people (laughs) who might, at least uh, theoretically, they might hope there isn't life elsewhere in the universe. So there might be life or there might not be life, and there are people who hope there is, and there's some people who hope there isn't. So... Coming from your various scholarly, methodological perspectives, what I wonder is, do you think, should we hope there is life elsewhere in the universe? Mm. Now, I can see from a scientific perspective, given the sort of methods of science, you, you could say, you know, if there is life elsewhere in the universe, then we should hope to find it, because that would be a discovery of something that is there. But given the fact that we don't know it's elsewhere in the universe... Should we hope that it is there? (laughs) Is the question I I have.
2: I hope we find loads of intelligent life because then we know that we're not facing a great filter with our technological maturity because there's lots of intelligent life out there and that will help me to sleep at night.
0: Say a bit more about what the great filter is too.
2: So if we find lots of intelligence, well, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, if the cosmos has all sorts of Conscious intelligence in it. I mean, that would be wonderful, and maybe they could help us through um, difficult times on our own planet. But I'm skeptical that we will find intelligent life in the next 20 years. I think what we'll find first will be microbial life, maybe within the next 20 years. Uh, It's looking that way, and that's very very exciting. But um, if we find lots of microbial life, and we never come and and we never find intelligent life. That may suggest that there's something in between microbial life and advanced civilizations that is very difficult for civilization to emerge and be stable. And then you get into worries about how we treat our planet, the development of safe artificial intelligence, and other existential risks. So you worry that there might be some sort of a an in principle, obstacle there that stopped the development of intelligence for long on other planets. And that that could reveal something about our own predicament.
3: That almost sounds apocalyptic, Susan. Oh, no? And, <laughs> and, and actually, there is very strong biblical roots for that as well. <laughs> so, So, oh, yeah, no. you're... You're almost speaking like a prophet. Oh, no. Actually, find that very thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) I find that thrilling myself. Thrilling. (laughs) Uh, uh, For me, uh, it is that hope that drives the the search for life, uh, astrobiologically speaking. Uh, I can't imagine astrobiology not uh, being driven by that kind of hope that there is life out there. Um, I think for me, theologically, it. uh, If we do discover intelligent life or if intelligent life discovers us, uh, it would show at least this, that uh, we're not the only game in town when it comes to the universe, or to put it another way, it's not all about us. And I think that's a very healthy theological position to hold, is that uh, God is not exclusively focused on the welfare of human beings. And uh, we can already sense that when we see the diversity of life on this planet um, and our emerging environmental ethic of, uh, of treating other life forms, uh, uh, caring for them, ensuring they're flourishing on this planet, because we know that in their flourishing, we will flourish as well. Uh, but to broaden that out beyond this planet, I think, would be, uh, is, is I think, a theologically very helpful healthy way to, uh, to think about God at work in other places of the universe and to ask the question what has God been up to the past 3.8 billion years before the advent of humanity on this planet I suspect that, that God has uh, uh, is attentive to things beyond our pale blue dot and, uh, and I think that's a that's a biblical position as well even though the Bible focuses exclusively, well, not, that's not quite true. Uh, the Bible focuses on life on earth, but uh, there's something to be said, uh, biblically speaking, about angels uh, and um, uh, uh, the divine assembly. Uh, I mean, there's there's already the a heavens. broadened, the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible has not one word for the universe. Uh, but uh, but two words at least in the Hebrew Bible, and that is heavens and earth, and God is the maker of heaven and earth. So we're here on earth, but what about the heavens? And...
1: To paraphrase a uh, famous biologist, J. B. S. Haldane, I think the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. And for me, there's a real hope in that that the exploration of the universe will teach us something profoundly wonderful about the world and about ourselves. And whether we end up calling it life or calling it something else, I look forward to being surprised. Uh, Paul says we see now as in a mirror darkly, uh, but then we will see face to face. Then we will know as we are truly known. And I think that this process of astrobiology is exactly the kind of exploration that will give us an opportunity to know ourselves and our place in the universe in a new and better way. Thank you. I
0: can't think of a better way to conclude our first installment of the Fresh Thinking podcast. And I'd like to thank Lucas Mix, Bill Brown, and Susan Snyder for being uh, my first guests on the podcast. And uh, if you're interested in following more about our inquiry, p- please follow our website. We have a blog, www.ctinquiry.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.